Welcome to Miyagi Mornings Weekly Recap, a podcast version of our daily video series, Miyagi Mornings. Links to the video version of each segment can be found in the show notes for this episode. These recap episodes are part of the Survival Podcast feed, but are numbered independently as a special weekly edition of our show in all podcast feeds. How's revenge? Daniel San, you look revenge that way. Start by digging to grave. Walk right side, safe. Walk left side, safe. Walk middle, sooner or later, get the squish just like grape. Well, hi folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings episode 164. Today we're going to talk about building wealth, and the title of today's episode is Building Wealth is Boring. And maybe a better way to put that is Building Wealth Always Appears Boring or Looks Boring, and specifically the parts that actually result in the building of the wealth. So let me tell you how this subject ended up being today's episode. Last week, in one of my social media groups, I saw a post where somebody said, Bitcoin is boring. And of course, this is one of these, you know, people that are into every other third uh, altcoin or whatever, and everything's going to make them rich and buy a Lambo and go to the moon and blah, 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 blah. And what I said is, every reliable method of building wealth in the world looks boring. That's why so many people fail to actually do something that's actually relatively easy to do in this day and age in most of the world. I, I think that building wealth, has probably it's probably never been easier to build wealth if you understand the fundamental principles of actually building wealth and then do them than it is right now. But it looks boring. And the way that I mean that, and the way that I try to explain that is, even when what you're doing looks exciting from the outside, the things that actually build wealth on the inside are fundamentally boring. So when we look at something like investing in an asset, you pick a solid asset. Some of you don't think Bitcoin is. Some of you do. That's neither here nor there because it, it maybe it's not Bitcoin. Maybe it's a high-quality dividend-producing stocks. But the way that we build wealth is we work really hard. We earn more than we spend. And that which we don't spend, we wisely invest over time. That that. Now, there's other ways to do this with real estate and business building and stuff, but for the purpose of what I'm about to explain, that alone would be an improvement over the mindset. So this weekend, I happen to be at a, a, a meeting, not a meeting, more of a get-together, right, a social get-together. And there was a young man there, and I'm going to say he was a young millennial. And I, all of you millennials are young to me, but he was on the young side of that generation. He's just moved here not so long ago. He's become really good friends with a mutual friend, family member. And we were talking about a bunch of things, but we ended up talking about crypto a little bit. And he said to, uh, to a mutual friend, you know, you wouldn't believe how many people younger than me are millionaires now. And they YOLO'd, you only live once, into crypto. And sometimes it works out. And, you know, me being me, wanted to go, hold on. And I just didn't. I learned a long time ago there's certain things that we just don't, dig deeply into, especially if we're not asked our opinion in social situations, especially when part of the social situation is family and then their friend, like, you just don't do it. But this is this is the conversation I would have had with that young man in a different setting if he wanted to have it. And maybe our mutual acquaintance will pass it on to him. But it does look boring. 
it looks very boring. So when it comes to crypto, and this isn't a crypto episode, but when it comes to crypto, everybody wants to know what's the next Bitcoin or what's the next Ethereum. What's the thing that I can go in with like 500 bucks and buy 10,000 of them and it's going to go to $10, right? And I'm a millionaire overnight. And that's gambling. It doesn't mean it doesn't ever you know, work out, as this young guy put it, but it's gambling, and for most young people, it ends up being financial ruin long-term. If they actually do get lucky, and they do get that kind of money, they generally destroy their lives with it. And I'd like you to kind of think to yourself right now, and those that are in the live feed can answer the question in chat, do you think in general you're better off if you struggle before you obtain a high income? Or even you know, a moderately, you know, middle-class, upper-middle-class income? Do you think it's better that at some point in your life, before you have that level of income, especially if you grew up in a family where your, your family was fairly well-off and you pretty much had everything you wanted, if you get out of college and you land like a $100,000-year income right out of there, do you think that can really mess you up? And I personally do. Um, I think that young people are way better off If at some point as they're kind of coming up in the world, they have a, a, a week where they sit down and they look at their checkbook or whatever and they look at when they're going to get paid and they look at their bills and they think, gee, am I going to really be able to buy groceries next week, let alone can I go out? I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's good while it's happening, but I think it's good that it happens. And in, P, in, in my experience, when that doesn't happen, When those people start to make a lot of money, they spend it as quickly as it comes in. They, they, they get deeply into debt. They end up doing uh, immeasurable damage to their life. And then if they hit kind of the home run, then it gets worse. And so part of this is that money is a sword with a double edge. And it cuts both ways. Money is power. And if you give somebody, let's say, a car that has 800 horsepower, right? That can, you know, like one of the fastest cars, like it's like a race car that's street legal. And that person has to become a, a disciplined, skilled driver. They're going to hurt themselves and others in that vehicle because it's too much power for the place that this person is in their life. And I see this with a lot of people with you know, kind of this young money thing. And you see it when people win lotteries and they destroy their lives in five years and they're bankrupt, right? And it's because we don't get over this first hurdle That building and managing wealth is boring in appearance. And, and here's how I mean that, even when you don't think it is. Everybody looking from the outside thinks, wow, it's great that this person can do this and look how easy their life is or whatever. So I'm a podcaster, for God's sakes. I podcast for a living. I literally started my, my show talking to my audience in a little recorder in my car back in 2008. And I built a multi-six-figure business in a couple of years. And that looks fun and exciting, and all this guy does is talk and whatever. Like, No, but it's the fundamentals that actually make building wealth that way are boring. Putting together a membership program that charges somebody $30 to $50 a year and then marketing that effectively is boring. Maintaining uh, the vendor base inside the discount membership that I have is boring. In fact, I probably don't do it as much as I should because it's that boring. But without it... There's no income. Maintaining relationships with sponsors is boring. You know, finding the right sponsors that don't damage your brand as you enhance theirs is boring. 
the, the person that was kind of the intermediary in this situation, our mutual friend between me and this young man, um, is a family member, and, and they have a really fantastically successful business at this point. And my, it's my nephew's wife, and she's an Instagram model, and she puts sexy pictures out, and they have all kinds of stuff that they do, and they work as an influencer all, and they, they do very well. I won't say how. I'll just say they do well. And it looks, if you're on the outside of that, like, wow, she just works out and looks great. And like, but the fundamentals that make the money is boring. My, my, my nephew, it, working in that business, worrying about things like P&L reports at the beginning is why they're successful. How they manage their money once it comes in and don't spend it before they have it is a big part of them being able to build long-term wealth. And now, you know, like recently moving into the home of their dreams and all. It's all boring. It's all boring. Everything you see that looks fascinating, right, that looks amazing, that looks like, um, that looks like wow, what an amazing life. The, I'm not saying the lifestyle may not be amazing. I'm not saying that the day-to-day work might not be enjoyable. But the, the way that the wealth is built is boring as fuck, okay? It's boring as fuck. It's not exciting. It's not rolling dice on a table in Vegas and hoping it comes up, you know, uh, 7 come 11 or whatever. That's not how wealth is built. Wealth is built by boring shit like going out and finding the right house to buy at the right price and then putting it on Airbnb and doing that one fucking time the right way and realizing, holy shit, I can keep doing this. And maybe it takes you eight or nine months of plodding through hundreds and hundreds of properties to come down to a couple dozen properties that you actually physically go visit and waste your fucking time on half of them and find that next one. And next thing you know, you're building out this portfolio of real estate, right? That's fucking boring, right? But whether it's done through Airbnb, rental properties, flipping properties, rehabbing properties, number one way people become millionaires in the United States is still real estate. It's maybe a little harder than it used to be. It's still doable. It's boring, though. And until you understand that like earning, saving, and building wealth is boring, you're not going to build wealth. And whatever you do build, in my opinion, you will ruin it, or it will maybe make your whole situation worse. I can tell you that when I was 21 years old, just out of the military, partying and hanging out with my friends all the time, I had an incredible work ethic. When I was on the job, like if I was working a job and the clock rang in, I would work till I bled. I would work till there was no one... Anywhere I work that I feel ever worked harder than me, physical exertion and work. And I was good at whatever I did. But I didn't have the behavioral component down to what to do with the income after I earned it. So I spent most of it chasing girls in bars, just to be honest, right? It was plus 21, 22. It's kind of what you're supposed to be doing. But once you want to turn the corner and build wealth, you have to go boring and basic and predictable. And if you're not willing to do that, like I said, you can have somebody that's running an Instagram modeling business. It looks all fancy and it's beautiful. And that's all you see is the beautiful photography and like the deal they make with, with some brand or something like that. And you think, wow, how exciting. Or they go out to a club and then they're, you know, welcomed in. They have their own table and like, oh, look at this. Right. And that all looks like, wow, amazing. But. If that if that's not run as a business, because I can tell you right now, my, my I guess you call her my niece-in-law. There are plenty of women that have Instagram modeling presences 
that have more followers, right? That, that have been around longer, right? They're, they're much bigger in, in raw numbers. They don't make any money because the basic and boring shit is what makes the money. And like I said, it's one thing you got to earn the money, but I really believe, and I'm going to put this question back up. What's more important, do you think, hard work when it comes to building wealth, or is it more important the behavior of the individual after the money's earned? And I can tell you flat out, it is the behavior. It's behavior with money. And what I've learned, um, and, and uh, Lake Erie Reseller here says both, no one's saying that the earning money is not important and hard work to earn money is not important. But you can work your ass off and never earn any money. Like until you understand that, you're done. Like you can't even begin to get to, to the to the stage we're talking about today. You can kill yourself and not earn any money. You can get into positions where you do almost nothing and earn lots of money because of education, connections, whatever. I know plenty of people do not work hard at all, earn lots of money, and they're dead ass broke. Right? And if they improve their work ethic and actually even earn more money, they're still going to be dead broke. I know plenty of people, you know, especially in, in my age bracket now, that have methodically worked their whole life. They never earned what people would consider a high income, but they've built tremendous wealth. Right? And they never really worked that hard either. They found a job that they were okay at. They kind of got into it. They, they hold a desk down half the day and actually do some work the other half of the day. They get paid. They don't screw up. They always show up for work. If they go out and get hung over, they put their shit together and show up for work the next day or whatever, right? They're reliable. They don't cause any trouble at work, so they keep their job. They keep their income, but they're wise about their behavior with the money after they earn it. It's. I asked you the question, but I'm going to tell you it's not even close. It's not even close what's more important between either how hard you work to earn money and the behavior you have with the money after you earn it. If you, if you took a look at what started this whole thing with Bitcoin, I don't care if you make minimum wage. If since 2014 you had taken 5% of your wealth and put it into Bitcoin right now, it would have been incredibly boring. It would have required discipline getting through two cycles of bull, boom and bust. It would have looked really boring. People would have been talking about you know ICOs and all back in 2017 and look at all these things you could be doing. And it would, it would look boring. But there isn't one of you out there listening to me right now that had you done that wouldn't be a multimillionaire today. Not one. Not one. 5% of your money put into an asset that looks like a good, reliable bet. 1%, 2%, right? The easiest thing you could have done in the world of cryptocurrency is ignored everything, bought Bitcoin, and put yourself in a coma. But it's boring. The, the best thing you can do to build wealth in this country right now, if you have any means whatsoever is something in real estate, right? There's so many opportunities. Airbnb, hip camp for like turning things into uh, into campsites and whatever. Like, there's so much opportunity there, and you might have to save money like a bastard to get that first down payment and get. But once you get one functioning and you get cash flow and you got provability, then you can go get more money. And the more you get, the more they'll give you. But it's boring, and it's hard. And it's slow, and it's methodical. And when I say it's hard work, people think of some guy with a shovel sweating and digging in the sun and busting his ass with a pick or something, right? That's physically hard. Hard work, though, is when it really comes down to it, 
the ability to recognize that what you're doing is the right thing and then to consistently do it for sufficient time for the work to repay itself and then start paying you a dividend. And it will look boring. It will look boring. You'll see the pretty girl in a swimsuit. You won't see her and her husband working their ass off on a P&L report for their business. But the reason they have the wealth from the business and the success and can live that amazing life is the boring part. You won't see the podcaster who got up at 3 o'clock in the morning every freaking day for 18 months until he could go full-time because that was the time he had to work putting together his outlines, developing a revenue model developing relationships with vendors and off hours, which was hard to do, to create a, a basically a money, a monetizing machine that if then you can just focus on building the audience, bringing them in, and, and some portion will convert, and then money takes care of itself. But while you're doing it, it's freaking boring. It's boring as shit. So, in the end, building wealth is boring. But when you're doing something consistently and reliably, I don't care what it is, sooner or later, it becomes boring. And the way to build wealth is through consistent and reliable behavior. And there's no shortcuts. There's no lottery tickets that are going to fix your problems. Now, if you happen to figure something out and you're able to make a play and it pays off quickly, great. But then how are you going to behave with that wealth? You can go out and buy a Lambo, rocket ship to the moon, Or are you going to take that wealth as well and put it back into that same methodical process? Biggest piece of advice that I can give anybody, and I'll, I'll see if I can find it and add it to the notes uh, for where I publish these shows on my blog. Yeah, because I didn't this morning. I didn't think about this. Richest Man in Babylon. Um, one of the most important books I ever read in my life. Doesn't say building wealth is boring, but it lays out the process of building wealth. And when you really, it does it in a story form, so it's not boring to read. But when you look at the concepts, basic and boring wins the game. And the entire book is available in audio on YouTube. So you can listen to it for free. I think at one time I even ripped it into a few MP3s and threw it on one of my servers. If I can find that for you guys, I'll, uh, I'll put that out as well. Anyway. Basic and boring wins the race, guys, and uh, we'll catch up with you tomorrow with another episode of Miyagi Mornings. Well, hey, folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 165 today, and this is going to be um, very hard for many people to hear. I think people in my audience that are accustomed to me are going to be like, yep, yep, well, yep, yeah, like that. But I think if somebody shared this with you, this might be hard to get through. And the reason it's going to be hard to get through is because you've been trained to make it hard to get through. That will be the first thing you hear today of many things that you will hear today that are hard to hear and hard to accept about yourself and about the system that you've come up in. But these are absolutely factual statements. I, I will say that anybody who takes a listen to this video or this podcast today, depending on how you consume it, who then logically analyzes each one of my claims as to whether or not they're true, can only come to one conclusion, and, and, and that is that they are. So I've got eight key points to hit with you today. And again, I, uh, I really ask that you try to make it through this if somebody shared this with you, because no one's going to tell you what to think today. I'll tell you what is. And then unlike the system that's produced 
the reaction that you'll have of that can't be true. No, I don't want to believe that. Oh, this guy's some some quack. Look at the flag behind him or whatever. You know, um, you're a product of a of a system that's made this the case, and it's designed to make this the case. And this is where I have to say, first point, and this will be actually harder for the people that are thinking for themselves now to hear than it is for the people that aren't yet. And that is, we have all been subjected to obedience training. And if you don't start from that standpoint, I don't care how old you are, I don't care, you know, back in my day, you know, I'm a boomer and we did things differently. You've been subjected to obedience training. And the primary place you get that obedience training for the first part of your life is in what they call the public school system, which let's just be honest about it, there's no such thing as a public school system. There's a government school system and there's a private school system. And the private school systems are often just as guilty of this as the government school systems because they're modeled on it. And if you think the government school system is truly the public school system, I invite you to go down to the public school that your kid, grandkids, nephews, nieces, whatever attend, that your taxpayer money pays for, and ask to be allowed entry into the school, to walk through the school, to inspect the school, to sit in the back of a classroom and listen to a teacher, if they're even in the classroom, do a class, and then tell me it's public. It's not public. It's government-controlled. And if we can't start there, it's going to be really hard to go to where we go next. Because number two, it has affected us all, and none of us are immune 100%. None of us. If you think I always think completely independently for myself, you're wrong. And it's dangerous. It's dangerous because then it incrementally comes back into your life. And we need to understand that this is indeed about training, not teaching. And what I want to kind of give you as an example to explain that is training is a response where an organism is conditioned to respond in a specific way to the point where it really doesn't have a choice about it anymore. So using my dogs as examples, I have trained my dogs for their own good as their master That if I say their name, like one of my dogs is named Lucy, if I say Lucy, house, and that dog is outside, she will go straight to either the front or the back door of the house, whichever one is closer, she will not think, she will not hesitate, she will go the second I say it, because I have trained that response the same way that I would take a grapevine and train it into a specific form. That's training. Likewise, I actually see my dogs as you know living individual creatures that should have some decision-making of their own. Right? They'll never be as anarcho as a cat, but they, they, they are animals that I love and care about. So I have taught them that an egg can be broken and there's yummies in there. That was a teaching moment. So my dogs often find eggs that the ducks or the chickens leave laying around my property. And if they want to eat it, they eat it. If they're not interested right now, they might go, there's an egg there, maybe I'll come back. But I ate lots of eggs today, so I don't need any more. That's teaching. I could have trained them. I probably couldn't train them to eat because an animal's not really going to eat when it doesn't want to eat. But I could have trained them that if you find an egg, break it. I could have conditioned that response to an egg must be broken, but I didn't. Everything that you came up with in your education as a child, both from parents who were well-meaning, but also a product of that same system, and that education system, and the TV set, 
was a mixture of training and teaching, but the primary objective was training obedience into you so you could be, quote-unquote, a productive member of society. And you're not immune to it. It did happen to you, and it does creep back into your life. And if you if you don't accept, accept that, um, you will never be able to identify it when it occurs and try to rein it in and gain control of it. Number three, we are also continuously exposed to reinforcement training from the media, from the government, and from our peers. We are constantly exposed to reinforcement training. So I have my dogs trained, but occasionally I'll see that my dog begins to wander from his training. Right? So then we'll go and we will put in a specific method to reinforce that training because it's very important to me, for instance, that my dogs defend our property, but also that I can give them a command and they will cease that action because the person that they're worried about, I have decided it's okay for them to be here. That's training, and that's reinforcement of the training because it's important training. We get this reinforcement training by the media constantly bathing us in a mixture of truth and lie to a specific objective. And we get this training also from our peers. And I want to go into point four of this, which is really important, and that is this ties into human survival instinct, and it's why it's so powerful. So if you think about you do both consciously train and teach your children. And what your hope is, is if you're an enlightened parent, that my training will eventually translate into teaching. So I will train a young child. I have no qualms about using that term. Do not run in the street. Because the consequence of that child running in the street could be a dead child. And not only have I lost my child or, or some poor child that maybe I don't really know, but that is, has a terrible loss of life. It also destroys the life of the person driving the car who didn't see that child dart out in front of them until it was too late. We've destroyed multiple lives, and probably many people connected to that child and many people connected to that driver. So that's why it's important at times that we actually do train. And this is a very visceral, natural human instinct. It's a survival instinct. There are certain things that if they're allowed to happen, cause death or pain. And so they need to be planted in the mind of a youngster very, very early. But it's, it's even more primal than that. Many years ago, right, before we had civilization, which is the majority of time humans have been on the planet, there has not been civilization as we think of it. We were small bands of hunter-gatherers. And there was a need for those small bands to conform to each other and to behave the same way And those who didn't were either, you know, basically banished or killed. Or because they didn't do what the group had figured out, like don't touch that big snake over there, they got bit and they died. And from that, leaders who were smart enough to understand, if I analyze this before I break with the training, there may be some things we have wrong and we began advancement and those people rose into positions of leadership. They were never, though, people that quickly reacted and said, hey, I'm just not going to do this because you told me not to. We'll get to that more in a bit. But there is a deep-seated nature for us to conform with our peers around us that is instinctual. And the people that run the media, the government, and the government institutions like the educational systems are aware of this. They're not stupid people. They're not dumb. They know this. And they're tying into it. And you need to understand that or you cannot break this. 
Um, five, though. Any source that intentionally lies to you cannot be trusted. Period. I want you to think about this. If you're, if, you're, if you're married, think of your spouse doing this to you. If you're not married, imagine that you're married and imagine your spouse doing this to you. You find out that your spouse has been having an affair. You, you know. You, you, this is not, I think, I think he's cheating. I don't know. He seems in his phone a lot. Like, you know. You have 100% absolute, conclusive, not proof, but knowledge. You've seen it. There's a photograph. There's something that absolutely you know they did it. You confront your spouse. Your spouse looks you dead in the eye and says, I swear to God, it's not true. Can you ever trust that person? That's a person you've implicitly trusted to the point of marrying them. Can you ever trust that person again? And I think most people would say no. And that doesn't mean that everything that person ever tells me for the rest of my life is a lie. It means that I first must assume that it's a lie, and then I must identify the truth, and if it happens to be true, then I can make decisions based on it. But I can't simply trust the source ever again, because not only was the source a lie, or, or not only has the source lied to me, it willfully and intentionally lied to me to, to its own benefit. Okay, your government and your media lie to you all the time. I'm going to give you an example of a lie, and I really thought about using a different one because, you know, COVID is such a, a reactionary term at this point. Everybody's taken aside. But this is, if you take COVID away from this, this is a blatant lie that you were told by both the government and the media last year when we started hearing about a drug called hydroxychloroquine. And let's leave out whether hydroxychloroquine does anything good or bad for COVID. Let's just put that on the shelf. Let's not get reactionary. But what you were told is the following, and I heard this statement issued over and over and over again. It is a very dangerous medication that should only be taken under the supervision of a doctor in a hospital. If you, if you think back, you heard those words. I guarantee you heard those words. And the more you turned on the TV... And listen to the mainstream media, the more you heard that exact claim. It's a, three pieces to this claim. All three are lies. I'm about to prove it to you. And I don't mean give you my opinion. I mean give you proof that they are lies. It is a very dangerous drug that should only be used in a hospital under the direct supervision of a doctor. Hydroxychloroquine is an over-the-counter medication in over 70% of the world. It is used all the time. And the Department of Veteran Affairs in the United States hands out over 60,000 doses of it a day for at-home use for conditions as mundane and boring as rheumatoid arthritis. It is one of the safest medications in the world. We've had it in our, in our lives for over 70 years. Whether it does or does not do a damn thing for COVID, when the TV and the government told you that it was a dangerous drug, It should only be used in a hospital under the direct supervision of a doctor. They lied to you three times in one sentence. Now, I'm going to go back to this. Can you trust a source that knowingly lied to you to its own benefit in the past? The answer, if you are a thinking, logical person, no matter how you feel about the disease itself, is no. You can't trust that source any more than you can trust a partner who had an affair on you You know they did it, and they look you straight in the eye and tell you they didn't do it. 
to their own benefit because they think that maybe they can get away with it. And that is absolutely the condition that you're dealing with now. And I'd just like you to think, are there any other lies that you can think of that the government knowingly and willfully told you? Because I'm telling you right now, when you were told this, this, these three lies about hydroxychloroquine, the people lying to you didn't get it wrong. They didn't make a mistake. It wasn't an error. It was an intentional lie because they didn't think you could be trusted with the truth. And people that don't believe you can, can be trusted with the truth cannot be trusted to tell the truth, period, the end, I'm sorry, infinity. Okay? Next, point six. Only you can do something about this. Only you can take action to counter this train. Nothing I say today can actually help you unless you take it in, you think about it, you meditate on it, and then you use logic and reason as you go forward to make different decisions in your life based on the truth as you discern it using your own intelligence and your own intellect. In other words, since you were trained rather than taught for most of your life, you must now embark on a, on a journey of self-education. Okay? You have to. And if you don't do it, point seven is... It will get worse. This thing that's been done to you has been done in a way where it propagates and expands its influence on your life over time. You would think that, okay, we put little kids in kindergarten and we teach them to, to walk in a line and sit in a line and take a nap when they're told to and take out their lunch and eat their apple when they're supposed to. But that's because we have to create some kind of order to teach a bunch of five-year-olds anything. And so as they get older, the conditioning will wane and they will think more independently. It certainly appears that way if you're looking at it from a standpoint of, well, Bill went left and Tammy went right, and no one told them to do that. Look at the little anarchist in the at work. However, the reality is the overall conformity and obedience, and if you're obedient to either of the two tribes that are under the main tribe that run your government, you're still obedient to your government. You're still obedient to bureaucracy. You can change out the politicians all you want. You still have the same system. Some people call it the deep state. Some people call it continuity of government. The entire point is you are being obedient to an apparatus, not an individual. And you become more obedient, and you become obedient to rules that do not even apply to you, that no one enforces. Rules like... Everybody should go to college. And next thing you know, you have $150,000 in debt in a degree that won't get you a job as a barista at Starbucks. Because you obeyed. And if you don't think it gets worse over time, I would like many of you who are like 30 through 50, think about the elderly people you know. How obedient are they? You know, we all like to talk about our grandfather this and our grandmother that and our great-granddad and blah, blah, blah. But the elderly are the most obedient members of our society. They say things, oh, we better do that. They said, they told us. My father-in-law was a hell of a warrior. This man was a child when he was in the underground in Nazi-occupied uh, Netherlands. His father won the Medal of Freedom, the highest award at a time that a civilian could, could receive, and he actually got three of them because he got you know, the uh, palms or, or whatever on them. I mean, his whole family was ripped apart. He, he lived on the streets for several years after his family was completely disjointed and put apart. And then when the Allies liberated 
the Netherlands, he joined the Dutch Marine Corps immediately at 17, lied about his age by a year to do it. And you know what? In his old age, he was the most obedient, compliant person I've ever met in my life. The person that should have been the least willing to be obedient because he'd seen what government can do was the most. Uh, he had a wonderful lady in his life after his, his wife passed away, far too young from cancer. Her name was Lavinia. And I remember one time, this is years ago, my son had a new cell phone and it rang and it had one of the you know funny, funky ringtones or something like that. And this is back before you could put songs on there or whatever. It's just a different ringtone. It didn't sound like a phone ringing in your house. And she was like, well, well, how, how did you do that? And he says, oh, you can just change it. Give me your phone. I'll show you. And her response was, oh, you better not. He didn't get it. And I said, you don't understand. This woman grew up at a time when you had a phone in your house on a wire plugged into the wall. Many of you are like, I remember that. But do you remember this? You weren't allowed to move it. When the phone technician installed it, they stapled it into the jack and they told you, another lie, that it was dangerous for you to unplug and plug in a wall phone. Remember that? Because I do. I do. And I ain't that old. But I'm telling you, if you don't get on this now, every day you become slightly more compliant because of the natural tendency to follow the example of your peers and to listen and obey because you were trained as a wee little baby. And that programming is in you and it can only be overwritten. It will never go away. If you program a computer, the only way to change the behavior is to reprogram the computer. It won't wane. It won't go away. It won't die off. The longer it operates, especially if it's a self-learning program, the more it will obey its original programming. That's your brain. You're the chief programmer, but if you leave it to others, you will act on the programming you've been given, and you will continue to self-learn greater obedience and compliance. Look around you. Look at the irrational behavior of people. Look at people that actually think what's being done to us right now is for the good of society and how ridiculous it is from a logical analysis. And you tell me it's not true. That we do not become more rather than less compliant as we age if we don't actively reprogram our brains. Eight, rebellion to obedience must be strategic and to a purpose, never reactionary. Because many truths are used to sell every lie. Remember earlier when I said you can never trust the source again, but it doesn't mean they're lying to you. What you have to do now is you have to treat every message that comes from the media and that comes from the government. And by the way, anybody like a spouse who you've forgiven for their transgression, but you know you can never fully trust ever again. What they tell you may be the truth. It may not be the truth. You have to take everything that they tell you. You have to gather facts. You have to use the logic and reason, in my, as my father-in-law used to say, your God-given brain, and determine whether or not it's truthful. And then you also have to determine, does it matter to you? Is it important to you? Are you supposed to care about this? Is there anything you can do about this? Because most of the things they tell you that aren't lies that our actual truths are things that you do not have any influence over, you're never going to have any influence over, but they're really good for distracting you from the things you do have influence over, like what you do in the next 10 minutes with your own life. You control that. Who's in charge in Washington? You don't control it. 
Because even the people you think are in control are not in control because somebody else is pulling the puppet strings. So it's really easy to tell you something like, XYZ politician is incompetent. Maybe they are. Do you think making them go away, even if you were capable of doing so, is actually going to change your situation in your life for the better or the worse? The answer is no. And part of how we came to this discussion today is I've been watching Yellowstone. And remember how I said we're, none of us are immune to this? We all have to be conscious of it. We all have to be willing to challenge ourselves. We all have to be willing to reprogram ourselves on a daily basis or the original programming continues to self-learn and write new commands and make us more obedient. Well, we got up to an episode where one of the characters is a Native American woman who's been asked to teach history in a college. And the, college, and the, the course is from uh, the arrival of Columbus to the independence of the United States. Like, if you really want something that's going to be hellfire, get a Native American to teach you about that time period as it being different than what you were taught in school. And she said, I'm going to teach you what happened. I'm not going to tell you what to think about it. Then she pulled out a book and said, I'm going to read from Columbus's own journal. And she read something that Christopher Columbus wrote about the people, the natives on the island that, that his journey first landed on. And it was hard to hear. It was hard to hear, and you wanted to think, oh, this is wokeism. No, this is the freaking words the man who was running the mission wrote down in his own handwriting without trying to hide or conceal any of the motivation, saying we could subjugate them all with only 50 men due to their ignorance of our technology, and they will make fine slaves. When I heard that, I knew every word of it to be true. There was still like a little catch in your neck going, I don't like that. I don't like you saying that. So you don't like somebody saying the truth. Even me. I would teach that lesson the same way, but I didn't like somebody else saying it. Because it conflicted with the patriotism, etc., that I was programmed with and trained with as a child. The child that grew into a 17-year-old that joined the United States Army and the United States Army Airborne. Right? That's still in me, and I have to still understand that that's there. If I'm to discern the truth for myself, I have to be willing to hear that which I do not wish to hear. I have to be willing to dissect it. I have to be willing to accept the truth about it, and the truth of what it means for the time that it came from, the truth it meant for the time in between, and the truth it means for the time today. And this is where our friends on the wokest left side have it all break down. They're plenty happy to talk about what it meant at the time, and then they try to drag it forward as though it is still that way and is still true today. That's asinine. However, our friends on the right will acknowledge that it happened then, acknowledge the things that happened in between, and then deny that it has any impact whatsoever on the present. This is also asinine. So why? Because your training requires that you have a side you can think you're picking. That's why. Without the illusion of choice, your training will break down. It will fall apart. You have to believe that you have a choice. You have to believe that it's not your training. It's actually your education and your knowledge helping you make a decision. So we need to create the illusion of choice for you. So we need to give you two main tribes to pick. And have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed as long as you pick one, everybody's happy? You're, if you pick the right, your leftist uncle will tell you how wrong and stupid you are, but you're not a horrible person for choosing the right, right? or vice versa. 
you can have these philosophical debates, you can get mad and yell at each other, but you've picked a side, so you're part of the obedience of the cattle. And the, the two herds, while they might be separated, are headed to the same slaughterhouse, so it's all okay. It's all fine. It's all good. It's okay. Yeah. Tell them you don't vote. See what happens. Tell them you're a libertarian. See what happens. Tell them you think people should be able to make their own decisions and not be influenced through force and coercion. See what happens. Then they get mad. Then they get angry. Then that visceral survival instinct kicks in. Must conform to mob. He's trying to eat the poison berries. Stop him. Hold him down. Beat his ass. Even if he gets a beating, it's better than if he eats those poison berries. And if you don't think the people that run all this, the people that created every system of governance we have, not just the one you think is governing you, not just the politicians in the Capitol building and the people you vote for, the people that created the economic system of governance, the social system of governance, the media's system of governance, the system of governance by which a person can be destroyed but never tried for a crime. And when it's even proven that they didn't do the thing they were destroyed for, they're still destroyed. And you know that it could happen to you next. And you think the people that did all that are not aware of that visceral, must not let them eat berries? That's your training working. That's your training working. And as I said, it's up to you to do something about it. Or it will get worse. Someday you'll be the old lady that when some, you know, it'll be something different. But some kid has a cell phone that rings different than yours, and they say, well, I can, you like it? I can change it for you. You go, oh, no. You better not. As though something bad will happen. It's the conditioning. And if nobody's ever explained it to you before, I did. I'm sure it was hard for you to take. I'm sure there's a lot of it you want to pretend isn't real. I'm sure you just want to say, look at him. He's crazy. He's not participating in your new normal. He's got a flag with a snake and a pirate skull on it that says, don't tread on me behind him. He's one of those conspiracy theorists. Really? You tell me we have not all been subjected to obedience training. You make a case for that. You make a logical, rational case that that's not true. You make a logical, rational case that it has not affected us all. And none of us are immune to it still today. That we don't still have times where we know we should do something differently. We know we should think for yourself, but you feel that nagging, oh, I better not. You, tell, you make a logical case to me that's not true. Tell me we're not continuously exposed to reinforcement training by the rules of society that aren't even rules and by what the media tells you and the government tells you. That it's not a constant retraining of your obedience. Make a logical case, not an emotional one. A rational, logical case. You know, using something called the trivium. Look that up if you don't know what it is, right? It's the way we used to classically educate people before the modern system, right? Um, tell me logically that this conformity doesn't tie into basic hominoid survival instinct. Make the case for that. Make the case for that. Make a case to me that it is rational and logical to trust a source who has knowingly and intentionally lied to you for their own benefit in the past. Make that case. Go ahead. Tell me that somebody other than you can fix this problem for you. That somebody can do it for you. It's like saying somebody can watch the sunrise for you. It can't be done. This must be done individually, not collectively. You have to choose this for yourself. Make the case for me that if you don't do anything, you won't become more controlled by the system over time. Go look at some of the elderly around you and tell me. Try to make a logical argument of that.
and tell me that it's okay to rebel mindlessly. Show me how it's okay to always just do the opposite of whatever the system says and not get hurt. Show me that you can't, that you can do this in a reactionary way and it's okay. You won't be able to do that. We'll have to think about each individual decision rationally and logically for ourselves. You explain to me how any of that's a conspiracy theory, and I will come back and I will do an updated video. I'll say I was I was I was pulled in by a conspiracy. If you can use logic to diffuse one of those, I'll come back on and say whoever you are was right and I was wrong. I don't expect to be doing that anytime soon. With that, we will catch up to you with another pod, uh, another episode of Miyagi Mornings soon. Well, hi folks, welcome to Miyagi Mornings, episode 165. We only have three episodes this week because it's a short week because we had Monday off. Anyway, um, today we're going to talk about Bitcoin ETF fuckery. And that's that's the word that I, I'm using today because that's the word that it is, right? Um, some of you aren't as, as happy with me when... I cuss as when I use other words, right? But this is fuckery that's going on. And it's it's been fuckery all year, and it will continue to be fuckery. And the greatest fuckery of all fuckery in the crypto space in relation to things like the SEC, the FTC, regulations, etc., is about to occur. And it's not the kind of thing that we've been led to believe we need to be afraid of, which is, Oh, they're gonna ban Bitcoin, or oh, they're gonna like KYC everything, including you know wallets that you can download from the internet that were developed in South America or something. Like, no, they're not gonna put the kibosh on crypto, guys. And there is more regulation coming. But the billionaire class has made a decision, and it's it's not a, a decision that's hard to understand if you actually understand what Bitcoin is, what it does the crypto space, the entire momentum and shift of both the technology that is money and the technology that controls and moves money. If you understand that, you, you, you know it's inevitable what these people do. If you look through history, what the billionaire class has always done when they've ended up on the wrong side of something and momentum is obvious and there's no way to shift it, what do they do, guys? Come on, you, you know what they do. They co-opt it. They grab onto it. They harness it. And they use their superior ability. For, and when I say ability, I'm not talking about necessarily brains. I'm talking about to manipulate laws and regulations and to print money and to obtain money that you can't get your hands on to stack the deck in their favor so that when I say co-opt, I mean they try to benefit from it more than you. And I don't think there's ever been a time in history where the general everyday average person, because... Because cryptocurrency came up completely devoid of any regulation. There's some regulation now, but it's still that anybody anywhere can basically make a cryptocurrency. And anybody anywhere can just buy cryptocurrency if they have some money. And anybody anywhere who has something of value to sell can say, I accept cryptocurrency. So there's been the biggest public front run of the multimillionaire's billionaire class that's occurred Maybe ever in history. So they got front run. They don't like being front run. And they want in now. And they're slowly, methodically, quietly getting in. I've told you this before this year. There is immense amounts of institutional money coming into Bitcoin. Slowly, 
And when I say slowly, I mean the amount per day coming in is being very carefully throttled. And I think you need to understand how good these people are at financial projections and economic projections. I believe they're coordinating, um, which would be a violation of many laws, but since they write the laws, the laws don't apply to them. And they know exactly how much they can move in per day without having a dramatic impact on the cost. They're not being loud and boisterous about it. They're not talking about it. They're not putting out press releases. They're very quietly moving their pieces on the chessboard when it's not their turn, right? They're not, they're not letting you know, hey, we moved, now you can move. For every Michael Saylor, for every billionaire that has billions of his company's money and billions of his own money in Bitcoin, there are 20 or 30 others saying, Michael, shut up, shut up. Not yet. Shut up. In fact, I think everything has been accelerated by people like Michael Saylor because he's not going to shut up. Now, why he's not going to shut up, I'm not sure. This could be the one monkey wrench, and it could be all a game, and I could be wrong, but I don't think so. There's too much on the line here. It's all leveraged with debt. It's all public. There's no way they did what they said they did and didn't do it. So I don't think Michael is on their side so much as he's on his own side, and he's decided to go his own way. I don't think he's doing it for you. And understand that. I think he's doing it for himself and for his shareholders. But I do think he's acting on his own self-interest, and he's basically decided to go off the reservation, and he's not going to shut up. So they had to accelerate everything. So what they're doing now, they are eventually going to approve a Bitcoin ETF, and probably other crypto ETFs. I would think that an Ethereum ETF will be next, and a hybrid Bitcoin-Ethereum ETF in one will be after that. And it's going to happen. And I said it's going to happen because it's even though they make the rules, there's a, cert, there's a certain level of they kind of have to follow their own rules. And you can't go around and approve an initial public offering for a company like Coinbase, whose only business is cryptocurrency, and say it's okay for you to be a publicly traded stock. It's okay for anybody anywhere to buy stock in your company. Any American citizen can buy it, and it can be in a retirement account, it can be anywhere. A, a pension fund for teachers in Massachusetts can buy your stock, but we're not going to approve an exchange-traded fund for Bitcoin. There's, there's a conflict of their own rules there. It's a glitch in the matrix that they can, they can keep it running for a while, but eventually it has to be resolved. You, you, because eventually... Some company somewhere will use their own shit to sue them and win if they don't. So what they do is they stall as long as they can. But here's the dirty, dirty little secret about what they're doing right now. The first Bitcoin ETF, and I'm about 95% this is going to happen now. And if it does happen, then everything else I say I'm like 99.9% .9 is going to happen. Will not be what's called an ETF spot account. It will be an ETF futures um, fund. I'm sorry, an exchange traded fund that's based on Bitcoin futures, not spot Bitcoin. And I want to explain the difference between the two, and then I'm going to ask the people in the live stream a question about it. So an ETF that is a spot account would be like, I think SLV is a silver spot account. And all it means is you put money in, and you might as well have bought silver. right? And you might wonder, well, why, why would you do that? Well, if your money is in some sort of wrapped-up institutional format, 
for, let's say, again, a pension fund for teachers, you can't really buy silver bars. And while there is a such thing as a physical silver IRA, if you have an individual retirement account, then it's really clunky to do physical silver. It's just much easier to just buy SLV. And, and if you're going to trade, like not high-frequency trading, but you're going to say, in my retirement account, if there's some unusual, weird spike in an asset, and I have no ta tax consequences for selling because now it's deferred, I'll sell it, and when it comes back down, I'll buy it back. All right? That's spot trading. And it's what most people that start out doing their own investing and their own trading do. And if you, if you get an account at a, uh, an exchange, you know, like Binance, Bittrex, uh, CoinEx, etc., you'll see that there's options for spot accounts and different types of futures accounts um, where you can use leverage. Now, a futures ETF is an exchange-traded fund that instead of, like, if I put $10 in, In Bitcoin, there's $10 or $10 in a USD. There's $10 in Bitcoin at that point, and they try to maintain a lock. So if Bitcoin's at $54,000, one share of you know BTC ETF should be $54,000. That's spot. That means you're trying to lock the number, and then there's a fee for management, maybe 1% a year or something. That's how they make their money managing the fund. But basically, all it is is somebody else buying it for you, And it opens up investment from funds that would be difficult or impossible to get into it otherwise. So again, if you're, run, if you're a, a pension fund manager for teachers in Florida, you can't go buy Bitcoin right now. The charter that you operate under says no. But you can buy ETFs and you can buy stocks. Okay, you understand so now why. But if you're Margaret in, in, in Massachusetts and you have an IRA... There is a way to do custodial Bitcoin or non-custodial Bitcoin IRAs. Right? It's complicated. Margaret in Massachusetts, Debbie in Des Moines, doesn't know how to do it. And if you mess it up, if you're doing it for yourself, well, then the government comes in like grinds you to a pulp. And if you're paying somebody to do it right now, the ones that are custodial, it's expensive. Unless you're doing a lot of money, it's, 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 it's inherently expensive. So this is the why behind it. Now, the futures ETF is basically gambling. You can make money when Bitcoin goes up, and you can make money when Bitcoin goes down with futures. We're talking about puts and calls, shorts and longs. Most of you listening to me, you've heard of this. You kind of get it, but you probably are not familiar with it, and you're not comfortable with it, and you don't completely understand it. I'm bet, I bet you that you fully understand how it works if I buy... A Bitcoin ETF that's one share to one Bitcoin, and Bitcoin doubles in price. Basically, my money doubles. But exactly how the futures work, unless you're a sophisticated investor, you don't. And if you're going to be going in and out of the fund inside some sort of tax-deferred status, right? And you're sophisticated. The only reason you would do it with an ETF is to get it into that tax-deferred status. Otherwise, you would just do it on your own, right? So this is a sophisticated investment vehicle. For sophisticated investors that are already playing a different game. Now, it does open it up for a lot of the institutional money, pension fund managers, uh, managers of investment charters for corporations, etc., that otherwise couldn't get in there. So their money can go in. And they can fuel and they can make that throttle. Now, again, what did I say? You can make money up and down. And you hear about these leverages and these future contracts running out, and you watch the swings in Bitcoin price at the end of the month when people close out those contracts. The more money that you can drag into that, right, 
the more money you can drag into that type of gambling, the more manipulation you can put on forcing the price down and forcing the price up. Now, there's a breakaway point with a limited commodity like Bitcoin. You can only do so much with it. And sooner or later, people leveraging can get it wrong and they can lose their ass. And if you're in one of these funds and you don't recognize the signals and you don't bail before it happens, when the fund loses its ass, so do you. Where if you had a spot account and then you just bought in with the money, and I understand self-custody, all that, but let's say you're, you're Margaret in Montana, right? Debbie in Des Moines. Fred in Florida, whatever. Just the average person. And you want to get into the Bitcoin game. And you're like, you know what? I have a half a million dollars in net worth in retirement. I'll buy 10%, $50,000. I consider that my high risk capital with high potential return. Where are you getting the $50,000 from? Most Americans couldn't come up with it to buy one Bitcoin or a half a Bitcoin if it goes to 100 grand. They don't have it, but they do have it. Do you understand what I'm saying? The middle income American and above has a tremendous amount of wealth sitting in these retirement vehicles that they can't get at, that you have to be penalized to go get at, and they tell you what you're allowed to and not allowed to buy. So now all of a sudden these futures come out, and it's not that Debbie and Des Moines can't buy it, it's that Debbie and Des Moines or George and George is one of the people in the, in the thing say, right? It's that you, they don't understand it, so they're not comfortable buying it. Now, what happens the second that the vaulted, you know, SEC, federal, and the FTC, etc., and they all um, look at this and they say, ah, we have blessed the Bitcoin ETF spot account. All these people that have all this money and all these behind all these walls get access to it. And they also understand it. Is there anyone listening to me in the live feed right now that doesn't understand what it means Now that I've explained it, to have a spot account ETF. Is there anybody confused by the fact that one share equals one unit? It could be one ounce of silver to one share. One ounce of gold to one share. One barrel of oil to one share. You know, if there was a dog ETF, it could be one chihuahua to one share. It doesn't matter. That's what it is. Whatever the commodity unit security is on the other side, one share equals one unit. Really easy. And it's the safest form of an ETF. If you go to a brokerage account and you want to start buying stocks tomorrow in Exxon, and you go to E-Trade or Ameritrade or whatever, you open an account, you link your bank account, you wire in $100,000. They don't give a shit if you lose your ass. You can start buying and trading stocks in, in literal minutes in the United States of America as a completely uninformed idiot. When you start saying, I want to use some of that their margin and I want to start buying me some puts and calls, right, They say, hold on. You got to fill out some paperwork. They got to approve you and they got to set you up so that if you lose their ass, they don't lose theirs. So it's, it's, it's straight out of the gate, just looking at it that way. It's much safer or safer, even though there's higher return potential in an options market, it's much safer for the average person who's throwing in money every week, every month, like the financial advisor liar says, dollar cost averaging to be in the spot world. Then in the leveraged world, if you're going to be in leveraged investments, you really got to know what the F you're doing, and you got to stay on it, and you got to pay attention to it. Debbie in Des Moines, Texas in Texas, George in Georgia, Jake in Jacksonville, right? 
Mel in Miami, all the regular everyday people like you and me, honestly. And I know more about this than most of the everyday people do. I'm not playing around a lot with futures and, and options and leverage because it requires a dedication that I don't have time to do. Got it? Right? So what they're going to do, they're going to release the freaking complicated, hard to understand Risky one for their, their highfalutin buddies who can coordinate illegally, legally, because they passed a law that said they can, and manipulate the price, forcing it up and down, creating excessive volatility, and they'll drag their feet as long as possible before they let Deborah and Tex and George and Fred in with that retirement money. And by the time they do, they will lose control of their ability to keep pushing the ball down And the overall realization, there's only 21 million Bitcoin. There will never be any more. It is a fixed supply. No, I'm sorry, you know, Bill, that's out there still heckling me. You can't hack it. It's never been hacked. It's not happening. And you, you'll be looking at six-figure Bitcoin. And then they'll finally say, well, now it's safe for you, Deborah, Fred, Tex, Peter, etc. Now you can have your spot account. And they're going to use, this is, the, this is the real fuckery here. If you haven't snapped to it yet, they're going to use all this institutionalized money that can now be poured into the futures market to manipulate wild swings of up and down, to accumulate as much of it as they can for themselves at suppressed prices. Because as they're using the institutional money that can only get there through the ETF to push down, they'll be using the other money they can do whatever the fuck they want with to accumulate on the outside. That's what's going to happen right, I mean, in the very near future. And again, I'm 95% based on the, I do have some, you know, a little bit here and there of some what you would call insider information, et cetera. There's some public information that backs this up. If you go look for it, you'll find it, that what they really want to do and what the SEC is signaling they're going to do, right? A lot of times they signal their intentions, right, for the, The peripheral billionaire that's not quite on the inside, hey, we want you we want you to know what's going on too, all right? At least we want your financial advisor who's actually an advisor versus a financial liar, like the guy that you have worked for you at Amex, right, that just tells you don't worry about it, right? They want them to know so they can plan accordingly because they want the coordinated effort. If you, don't, if, if you think these people... When they have these big meetings and shit, they get together and play canasta or something. You're the average American, and I really recommend that you start filtering the freaking fluoride out of your water. Okay? This is all coordinated. None of this happens in a vacuum. None of this happens. None of this happens without everybody kind of at least, maybe they don't all agree, but they all come to a consensus. Like, we all got as much as we can of what we want. Now we're going to go forward and do this. And that's what they're going to do. That's exactly what they're going to do to you guys. Now, the good news. If you're holding Bitcoin, you might get a little roller coaster sick in the next few months toward we going toward the end of the year, but you know you're heading for that real big peak. And then the, the roller coaster doesn't really drop much after that one. And that's what the Bitcoin roller coaster is like. For those of y'all that are new to this, it's this up and down, up and down, up and down, but it, it kind of like, it kind of tears up like locks in a uh, canal lock system. We find these new floors, and then we do this with that new floor. And every once in a while, woo! I made a meme recently, and it was a lady and a kid on a roller coaster. 
And they're holding hands, and a little kid is just freaked out. He looks like he's about to lose his lunch. He's like, ah! And the lady's just grinning and happy. And I'm like, the lady, I put bought Bitcoin in 2014, and I put the links to the little kid, bought Bitcoin in 2021. Which we call plebs, new, new entries into the world of Bitcoin and crypto. And if you bought, if you bought Bitcoin at 64,000 bucks at the top of the market this year, especially if you bought a lot of it, or I think some people, even a little bit of it, you're not feeling real good about this right now. Well, get your Dramamine, folks. We need, like, Bitcoin Dramamine for what's about to come. You know that pirate ship that the rocks back and forth that they have at the carnivals? It's like, woof, woof. Well, what's coming next is to take that pirate ship and put it on, like, a giant roller coaster so it's doing this, and it's also at the same time going through a roller coaster. I think I'd pay to be on that ride. So the good news is if, you're, if you've got your skin in the game right now, If you can just pop a Dramamine and back off and, and not be tempted to bail out at the wrong time, you're well positioned. If you're not in the game, somewhere in this is going to be what I'm going to refer to right now. Maybe I'll coin this phrase. Somebody will probably rip it off. The grand decoupling. There will be a point where this separates and we go from It's speculative, it's highly risky, blah, 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 to, well, everyone knows that the best place to store your wealth is in Bitcoin. Even if you're going to be in the crypto space and all the wonderful things in the crypto space are so great and, you know, all go around this and Cardano that and Cosmos this and Ethereum that, it's all going to be, it's all going to be buckled up at the core with Bitcoin. And this is what people meant when they keep saying Bitcoin is digital gold. If you look back before we went into full fractional reserve banking and pure fiat, for that 5,000 years that gold was money, we act as though it was just like everybody walking around handing gold and forth back. There were all types of financial payment investing systems. There were all types of, you know, most of the United States, when we think about it being colonized and settled by pilgrims and shit, bullshit, it was settled by corporations, It was settled by companies that came here to do things like cut trees down and sell them back to the king for masks for ships. But what fueled that? What was the backing commodity in all of it? Gold. That's your new gold if you understand it that way and you don't try to make a direct comparison gold to Bitcoin. I want you to think about it this way as well. This whole shit about how long it takes Bitcoin to make a transaction, what a transaction feed on, it's all nonsense. You know what's a terrible payment system, the United States dollar. The United States dollar, I'm not talking about fiat money here. I'm just saying, if you have a dollar, it's a terrible payment system. You have to carry it around. You have to risk losing it. If you buy something that costs less than a dollar, they have to give you this shit called change. If you have $10, you might get like two ones and some weird quarter things and a penny in change. So it's kind of a pain in the ass. And electronically, it doesn't do anything. But Visa works just fine. PayPal works just fine. Square works just fine. The payment rails use the central commodity of the dollar and enable commerce. Welcome to Bitcoin. Bitcoin was never supposed to really be something that was going to be always exchanged directly. It had to be able to. People talk about this shit like, what did Satoshi want? Like Satoshi's some kind of freaking prophet and we all have to bow down and kiss his invisible ass or something. 
And what he wanted was the most important thing in the world. But if you read all of the stuff around the development of Bitcoin, Satoshi was like, this is what we can do. Technology will do the rest. Technology will do the rest. So things like Lightning, etc. Things like liquid Bitcoin, wrapped Bitcoin. There's so much coming. And then that's going to spread out into the rest of the crypto ecosystem. And yes, 90% of it is worthless, pump and dump garbage. But 10% of 12,000 projects, right? That's 1,200 valid projects. And you got big winners and little winners in that group. But without the core, without the sound money in the center. And that's why the fuckery is going to happen with it first. They all want as much of it as they can get now because we front ran them for so long. And they're trying to make sure that last capability, all the money that Marion, Massachusetts and, and Phil in Philadelphia and Ned in New Jersey have saved up in their little nest egg doesn't get a crack at it before they do. That's what's going on. And if you doubt me, just watch in the next 60 days. I think it'll become abundantly clear. I'll be back next week with another four episodes next week of Miyagi Mornings instead of three. Thank you for tuning into this week's episode of the Miyagi Morning Recap. Remember, I do Miyagi Mornings to create short and shareable content for your friends and family who may not be up to listening to an entire podcast. Each of these segments from today's show is only five to eight minutes long and can be shared as both YouTube or Odyssey videos. Links to the video files for each segment are in today's show notes. If you want to submit a question for Miyagi Mornings, just email jack at thesurvivalpodcast.com with Miyagi Mornings in the subject line. All subjects other than politics are welcome for this special series. And please remember, you can always support the Survival Podcast by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com or becoming a member of the Members Support Brigade.